Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Well, good morning. If you'll remain standing, man, I'm just so thankful, so blessed to be here with you guys this morning. My name is Dave Williams. I'm going to do the scripture reading this morning. When I'm finished reading this scripture, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. I would ask that you respond with thanks be to God. So I'm going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New King Church. If I haven't met you, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, Please make a point to say hello after the sermon because uh, I won't be here for a while. Uh, Annette and I are planning to leave uh, this coming Wednesday, March 1st. We're going to take our little camper out to the southwest, and we won't be back, Lord willing, until May 1st, two months away. So uh, Annette and I both retired from secular jobs a couple years ago, and uh, about this time we say we've had enough of winter. Let's go to where it's warm, so we're headed out to Arizona and Utah and New Mexico to do some hiking for a couple months. So we'll miss you guys. We certainly do it with mixed emotions because we love you, and we love what God's doing here at New King, and to be away from it for a week is one thing, but two months is going to be hard. Uh, But we love you, and we'll be praying for you guys. So, uh, sermon today. I've got a sermon today, and I want to start by asking you, um, what do you think of the church today in America? What do you think of it? When when you think of the church, I'm not going to go worldwide, just nationwide. What comes to mind? Well, one of the things is there's always some bad headlines. There's always some pastor going off the rails, and it's a wreck. We know that. And so there's negative things that we think of sometimes when we think of the church nationwide. But then, what else do we hear? Something's going on in Kentucky. Amen? Asbury, Kentucky, the university down there, Uh, A couple weeks ago, some students decided to stick around after a service and pray and worship and confess sin. And it went on for an hour, and then two, and then three, and then into weeks. And God is doing something there, isn't he? Isn't that amazing? In the face of a lot of negative press, 
we see that God is still God. God is still Lord over the church, and he's still working. Well, that's sort of the topic for my sermon this morning, even when things are tough. And what we're going to see is it's a little tough for Timothy. There's a lot of negative stuff going on, but God is still God, and he still works, and we can still count on him, can't we? So let's uh, open with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, dive, not just jump. Today we're going to dive right in. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, help me this morning to clarify my thoughts, to speak your words. Uh, Father, give me a peace through your Holy Spirit to bring God's word to this congregation this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would help them to see Jesus in all this that they would see that he is the rock, the firm foundation, which is immovable. Father, help us to see that. Help us to understand these verses and be encouraged, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a little background. Um, as you know, we're preaching in 2 Timothy. Uh, here at New King, if you're new here, we go through whole books of the Bible. We went through 1 Timothy. Now we're in 2 Timothy. Before that, we went through the whole book of Matthew. Matthew's gospel took us two years, but we, we did it. So we go through whole books. And uh, Paul is writing to his son in the faith, this young pastor named Timothy, and he's giving him advice in the midst of difficult times. In the midst of difficult times. So notice... I'm going to go back a few verses and just give you the context so we understand what Paul means. Because my verse today, verse 19, starts with but. And we've got to go back. We've got to see what the but means. Why is the but there, right? Verse 14. Now, Ben preached this last week. He went through this whole section. But notice, remind them of these things, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. So what was going on in the church at Ephesus then? They were quarreling. They were fighting about words. And Paul says, I charge you, don't do that. So there was a bunch of quarreling going on. And uh, that doesn't lead to good things. It ruins the hearers. So negative situation, a lot of quarreling, and then that wonderful verse that Ben spoke on, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly handling the word of truth. So I know Ben gave some great examples about how to do that last week. So in the midst of difficult times, Paul says to Timothy, you need to be not ashamed about it, you need to rightly handle the word of truth, right? But then the passage goes on. Avoid, verse 16, irrelevant babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So there was this talk going on, this babbling going on, and where does it lead? Not to God, but away from God. Not to godliness, but to ungodliness. It was a slippery slope. So Paul is saying, Timothy, don't go down that path. You've got to rightly handle the word of truth. And then, verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So in the church where Timothy was pastoring, 
there was an infection, a bad teaching, a creeping infection that was spreading like gangrene. And we know that gangrene brings death. And these guys were preaching it. And it was something, when you hear the term gangrene, you should have a little bit of a physical reaction. I, I don't know if anybody here has seen gangrene. Yeah? It's horrible. It's rotten. It's putrid. It stinks. And it causes death. And Paul uses this term specifically to get your attention. And this bad teaching, this rotten, putrid, deadly disease was about something that's so dear to us. It's about Jesus and the resurrection. So it attacked the fundamentals. That was the situation that Timothy was in. Really tough. So Paul says, there's these two teachers, verse 18, they've swerved from the truth. They've driven off the road. And guess what? They are bringing people with them. Notice the last part of verse 18. They are upsetting the faith of some. Overturning the faith. Subverting the faith. Destroying the faith of some. So what does Paul tell Timothy? Now we come to the but. Now we come to the but in verse 19. What does Paul tell Timothy? Does he say, man, church is going down the drain. I don't know what we're going to do. Matter of fact, maybe we should just stay home and not attend any church at all. Does he say that? Do we join in with the bad teachers? Do we begin to give up the clear teaching of Scripture? And do we give in to the cultural pressures around us that say the Bible is irrelevant, outdated, oppressive, and hateful? Is that what we're to do in this day? No, 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 no. I beg you, no. We turn to the basics. We turn to the foundation, to the bedrock of our faith. You see, that's what Paul does. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands. Do you hear that? In the face of depressing news, of soul-destroying teaching, the foundation of God stands. Amen, yeah? So what is this foundation? What exactly is Paul referring to? Well, Paul is using in this portion a metaphor of a house for the church. Now, when you look at the church in the New Testament, there are several metaphors that are used. The church is a body. We're all connected together. We're all a part of the body. We're all connected to Jesus, who is the head. He says the church is a bride, and I'm the bridegroom, right? The church is a house, 
and it has a foundation. So he's using that metaphor. He's used it several times. It shows up in 1 Corinthians. It shows up in Ephesians. He's using this metaphor of a house. And when, when you think of a house, the house is the church of the living God, but it has to be built on something. So the metaphor is this house with a foundation. The church is the house. It's built upon there. What's the firm foundation? Well, there's a couple of verses over in Ephesians. If you could turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So Paul says this. He says, Then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on, now here is what he says, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What's the foundation? Jesus? What else? The apostles and the prophets. So when you think about what Paul says here, to the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was, he had used this metaphor before, and he says the foundation is built upon the apostles and the prophets, Jesus, the chief cornerstone. So everything is built on Jesus. He is the bedrock. What's built upon that? God's word. The apostles and the prophets were those that were given authority to write the New Testament. And Tiffany, you said it exactly right when you were talking to us earlier. It's Jesus and the gospel. That's what the foundation is. That's the rock that can't be moved. Jesus and the gospel. That's the foundation. And this is consistent with the whole book of 2 Timothy. Every single chapter talks about the value of the word of God in the day that they lived in. The value of the word of God in the day that we live in, right? That's why Paul says to Timothy, rightly handle the word of truth because it gives us the gospel and the gospel is about Jesus and Jesus is the rock and the cornerstone that we build our lives on and that the church is built on, right? You with me there? So, God has the situation under control. Even though it's a terrible, depressing situation, even in the face of resurrection error and crushing soul destruction, God's reign is not destabilized. Timothy can be sure that God's foundation stands firm. Jesus and the gospel. So, the foundation actually has something on it in this metaphor. A seal, right? Look at the next part of verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those that are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, depart from sin. So there's a seal, and a seal in those days indicated a couple of things. Ownership. Ownership. When you put your seal on something, it was a wax seal, 
and you put your seal on it, it indicated ownership. It also indicated authority. When something went out, a document with the seal of, a, of the king, it meant authority. So ownership and authority. And then thirdly, um, protection. When you went with the seal of the king, you were under his protection when you went on your mission or your errand for him. So it meant those th three things. Ownership. So who owns the church? It's, uh, it's Ben and, and Lucius and me and, and Nathan. No, no, no. This is Jesus' church. Yeah, right? Never, 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 never forget that. And if you ever, ever, ever hear one of us in leadership say anything else, you call us on the carpet immediately. It's his church. He is the head of the body of the church. Ownership, right? That seal is there. Authority. <laughs> we go in the authority of the king. <laughs> we are ambassadors of Christ. We go into this dark world of difficulty with his authority. That's what a seal means, right? And then protection. We, if we're under the king, we have his protection over us. That doesn't mean we don't get persecuted. It doesn't mean we don't have people yell at us. But ultimately... Our sole protection is in his hands. So there's a seal, and this seal has two parts to it. Two very interesting parts. The Lord knows those that are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Well, how does that help? <laughs> what are we going to say about that? Well, the first is dated in eternity, the Lord knows those that are his. The second, in time, we're to depart from iniquity. The first is what we must believe. We must believe that Jesus knows us. Something we must believe. And then the second part is something we must obey. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart. From iniquity. The first exalts God's grace and his mercy toward us. The Lord knows those that are his. It's relational. The second requires, again, our duty, something for us to do. The first speaks of our security in Jesus and in God. The Lord knows those that are his. What God does. The second speaks of our purity, what we are to do. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Two parts of the seal, right? Both come from a heartwarming story in the Old Testament. It's one of those stories that when you're with your family and you want to just bring everybody together and feel really good about everything, you read this story. And I'm going to give you a quick overview of it. It's, uh, it's found back in the book of Numbers in chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to give you a quick overview. And um, nobody's ever read Numbers. Nobody ever has read Numbers. So you say to yourself, I'm going to read the Bible. And that's a good thing. And you read Genesis, and there's all kinds of cool things that happen. And then you get to Exodus, and there's all kinds of good things that happen. 
And then you get to, what's the next one? Yeah, that one. <laughs> you hit, the, it's called the Leviticus syndrome, the Levitical wall, and you never read, you know what's after Leviticus? Numbers. You, no, no one's ever, you never get to Numbers. So Numbers, there's this heartwarming story in the 16th chapter of these guys. Um, they're, they're a band of people led by this guy named Korah, K-O-R-A-H. And uh, a group of leaders of, with Korah band together with about 250 other men, and they confront Moses and Aaron. There's sort of a showdown. And these guys, Korah and all his gang, say, who made you in charge, Moses? And they have this confrontation. And Moses responds, and he says, oh, you're, you're, you're coming after me. And he falls on his face, and he says this, wait until the morning. Then the Lord will show who are his. He knows who are his and will come near to them. That's in Numbers 16.5. or 16, five. So he says, the Lord knows. Wait till tomorrow. We're going to have a big showdown, and the Lord knows those that are his. So that's the first part of the quote. That's the first part of the seal. What do you suppose happens the next day? And this is the heartwarming part. This is the part that just creates butterflies in your stomach. So uh, they have the big showdown, and then Moses tells everybody, watch out, don't get too close to Korah and their tents. Stand a bit from them. They're in sin. Don't get too close. Don't touch anything of theirs. Depart from their sin. So there's the second quote. And uh, then what happens is so nice. The earth opens up its jaws, is the way the scripture says. And Korah and all his henchmen leaders are swallowed up down in, and they go down into the earth, straight into hell, Sheol. Doesn't that make you feel good? And what happens after that? What about the 250? God's fire comes down from heaven and burns them alive. Now, isn't that a nice story to tell people about Jesus and about, yeah. But that's the background of these two quotes. And why does Paul go back to that crazy story of death and destruction to illustrate a point for us today in the New Testament church? In the face of adversity and rebellion, God's got it. He knows those that are his. And he has some commands for them. Don't get too close, right? You, you, you guys have seen the videos, right, where somebody is taking a selfie, right, and they're at the edge of this cliff, and they're, and they're getting closer to the cliff, and they're getting closer to the cliff, and they're getting, don't get too close. Don't get too close to the edge because it's the edge of hell. Yeah? This is serious business. This is serious stuff. Look at what just came before in our chapter. Upsetting the faith of some. Destroying the faith of some. Don't get too close. 
to the edge. The Lord knows those that are his. If you name the name of the Lord, don't get too close to the edge. Get away from sin, right? That's the picture that he's trying, because it's the edge. Don't do it, right? So let's just talk for a moment about this first thing. But everyone who named, or uh, the Lord knows those that are his. Just a couple of thoughts. This is personal. This is about relationship. When the term knows is used, it is the most intimate term for a personal relationship between a husband and a wife. God knows you intimately. The Lord knows you, and you belong to him. No matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how depressing the news is, particularly about the church of the living God, the Lord knows you, and you belong to him. There's a verse over in John 10. Uh, Sam, could you put that up for me? I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Now get this. Look at, look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We, we don't understand the Trinity, but we know there's a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, and they have the most intimate relationship of anything that we can imagine. Orders of magnitude more intimate. Jesus says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I know you. That's what the first verse says. It gives us such hope. It gives us stability in our lives. We're known by Jesus, and that changes everything. So no matter how bad things are, we have a relationship with him. The Lord knows those that are his. In the early church, around 200, 300 A.D., this phrase was repeated again and again by those suffering some of the worst persecution. They would repeat it. The Lord knows those that are his. In the face of utter persecution, suffering, and death, the Lord knows those that are his. The second part, first part was God's knowledge. The second part is our responsibility. If we name his name. Notice what it says. Let everyone who names the name. Do you name the name of the Lord? Do you name him? Do you say he's my Lord? Do you say I'm a Christian. I put my faith in Jesus and now I'm going to follow him. Do you name him? Do you name the Lord? Depart from iniquity. Don't have anything to do with it. Don't get too close to the edge. Right? It's our responsibility, it's our duty. To be near to God means holiness, 
purity. We must be cleansed from sin. And to be near him means to have that intimate relationship. Don't bring sin into it. When it comes to false teaching, we are not to overlook it. We are not to tolerate it. We are not to partner with it. We're to depart from iniquity. And the next verses kind of describe what that looks like and what that means. So in the next verse, in verse 20, Paul says, now in a great house. Again, the picture of the church, the metaphor of the church. The church is now a great house, meaning a large house. Um, there's vessels in the church, in the house. He says, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. So again, the metaphor is the church, and in the church are two types of vessels. Vessels of honor, gold and of silver. These were used were for food and drink back then. That was what you ate from, right? Gold, vessels of gold and silver. And the vessels of dishonor, the ones that they talk about here, wood and clay, dishonorable, they were containers for waste. So food waste, human waste. And Paul is saying the church is a great house, right? The church today is just like the church back then, and it's just like Israel back in the days of Moses. It is of mixed nature. We have to come to grips with that. The whole New Testament talks about the church is being made up of those that honor and those that dishonor. It's in the parables of Jesus. It's in the letters to, to the church in Revelation. It's from start to finish. The church is mixed. That's just how it is. There are people that are honoring God. Think of Timothy, right? He's honoring God. Think about chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. There was this guy, Epaphroditus, and he sought Paul out and he helped him. He was honoring God. And then you have these other guys that are named here, Hymenaeus. And Philetus, there they were. They were in the church, and they were destroying the faith of some. The church is a mixed group, a mixed house. This shouldn't be news to us. And there it is. Well, what do we do? What do we do? If we know that, if we understand that, if we look out and we see that in our lives, what do we do about it? We have a responsibility. If we name the name of the Lord, we must depart from iniquity. Therefore, in order to be honorable, some type of a cleansing is required. We must cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. We must clean house. And it must start with us. Personally, It must start with us. Per the context of 2 Timothy, 
We must distance ourselves from the false teachers, from the dishonorable teachers. It's sort of a corporate cleansing. How do we do that? Be careful, be careful, be careful who you're listening to on the internet. Be careful, be careful, be careful. There's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of dishonorable stuff. Be careful what you're taking in. Be careful of that. Certainly here at New King, we have several of us that teach. Hold us accountable. Make sure we're teaching for the word of God. Make sure we're not going off into error. You know, it's so interesting on Monday mornings. You've heard me talk about this so many times. I'm going to talk about it one more time. We have our pastor's meeting. And uh, we meet together, and uh, we start usually around 8, and it goes to 11 or 12. And one of the first things we do is we talk about accountability. We hold each other accountable together. And then often we talk about the teaching. For example, we look at what passages are coming up, and we'll talk through them together to make sure that each of us are on the right page. And we'll dialogue together, and we'll talk it through. And, and it's, it's a wonderful, healthy thing. I might say, hey, guys, I'm, I've got this passage in 2 Timothy, and, and here's what I'm thinking. Am I okay with that? It's healthy. It's good. It keeps us on the right track. So just be careful of the teaching that you're bringing into your soul. Just be careful of that. Um, and second, as the passage progress, progresses along, the cleansing must be personal as well. Notice verse 22. Verse 22 is really interesting. It has both this idea of corporate cleansing and personal cleansing. It says, flee youthful passages, passions. Sorry, That's a personal kind of thing. I'm to flee that. And then I'm to pursue. So this idea of, of running, uh, running from something, running towards something. So personally, youthful passions, faith, love, and peace are what I'm to pursue, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there's both this idea of together being pure, but also individually being pure. It's there. And then uh, in, back in chapter or verse 21, it, uh, it talks about four results of this cleansing. Four results of it. It says, uh, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. That's the first thing. A vessel for honorable use. Gold and silver vessels for serving food and drink. They provide refreshment, nourishment, sustenance, vitality. Timothy, Paul tells Timothy over and over about sound doctrine. That's healthy doctrine. That's life-giving doctrine. So when you cleanse yourself, you will be a vessel for honorable use. Then the second thing it says is you will be set apart as holy. 
set apart as holy, sanctified, set apart from sin, set apart for God. So it's from sin, it's for God. It's like people sometimes ask me, what does sanctification mean? It's like when you wash the dishes and you take the dirty dishes that have been used, again, this idea of, of utensils and implements and vessels and all that, and you wash them and you cleanse them and you get all the dirt off and then you dry them and you put them in your cabinet and they're all ready to go. They're set apart, ready for use. Yeah, see that? They're ready for use. So he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, sanctified, useful to the master of the house. Who's the master? It's Jesus. Jesus, the head of the church, is the master of the house. The deepest desire that Paul had was to be useful to the master to be of use. And then it says the last phrase, ready for every good work. Ready. Prepared. You're ready to go. You're ready at his command. You're ready to go and do good things. Right? So, <coughs> Are you ready? Are you prepared? How do you do that? What does it look like? Where do we begin? Probably the most well-known example of that is also back in the Old Testament, and I want to turn there for a moment in closing. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, if you were in our community group this last Wednesday, we spent over an hour going through Isaiah 6, and I don't have time to do all that today, but just a couple of things here that are so significant and so relevant. So Isaiah 6, um, verse 1, it says, the, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So, so this is Isaiah speaking. He he's, sees this vision of the Lord sitting upon the throne. And it says the train of his robe filled the temple. So one of the things we talked about on Wednesday is where is the Lord and where is Isaiah? The Lord was in heaven on his throne. Isaiah was in the temple on the ground and something was connecting them. There was a connection between heaven and earth. It's a portal. It's a connection. Another portal is like Jacob's, Jacob's ladder. There's these connections between heaven and earth. So there he is on his throne. There's a connection to the earth. His, the edge of his garment, his train filled the robe, and above him stood the seraphim. Now these are angelic being, beings. Seraphim means burning ones. Each had six wings, two covered his face, two covered his feet, and two flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And 
the house was filled with smoke. We talked about on Wednesday, all the senses were bombarded with this person of God upon the throne. And what does Isaiah respond with? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So get this. This man sees God clearly, and that gives him the ability to see himself. I see myself and I see my people unclean. Woe is me. And what happens? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. God sees us in our situation. When we come to him, we see him clearly. That allows us to see ourselves clearly. And God acts. This is a picture of the cross. This is a picture of our sins being taken away. And so that's what happens. And then what happens? I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God says, I want people to go. I want ambassadors. And now you're ready. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And God says, go, and off he goes with a message for the people. Isaiah saw himself and the people as needing cleansing. He comes face to face with God, and he sees it clearly. His sins are then taken away, and now he's ready to go to bring a message to the people. To use the words of 2 Timothy, Isaiah is now a good soldier aiming to please the one who enlisted him. Remember that from the beginning of the chapter? He's an athlete competing with every fiber of his being according to the rules for a crown that will never fade. He's a hardworking farmer that will get the first share of the fruit. He's an approved worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He's a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master, ready for every good work. What will you be? Will you come before God, the king? Will you see him face to face? Will you see the king of glory? Confess your sin to him and say, send me. I want to be useful. Oh, Jesus, I want to be useful. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Jesus, use me. Send me. Help me. I want to go for you. I want to go out into this world and speak for you. I want to be a good farmer, a good athlete, a good soldier. We must come face to face 
with God to do that first. We must have had an encounter with the King of glory, just like Isaiah did. The foundation of God stands firm. Having this seal, the Lord knows those that are his. He knows you. He loves you. He wants you to serve him. Depart from iniquity and go. Will you pray that God will send you? And I don't mean to a far-off country. Maybe. I'm talking about right here. Right in Burlington. When Annette and I get back in May, we're praying that the revival comes here. That's what Ashbury did. That's exactly what they did. They saw God. They worshiped God. They prayed to God. They confessed their sins to God, and revival broke out, and it's spreading. Will it spread here? Will you come to God? Will you confess your sins? Will you say, Lord, I want to be useful to you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you know us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who cleanses us from all iniquity. Father, help us to pray that we might be of use to you. Prepare us, send us, have us confess our sins, and have us be ready to go. Father, send us and use us. We pray this in Jesus' name.